Okay, um, guys, we're actually going to complete a teaching series, a sermon series that we've been working through for the last, um, I think, eight or nine weeks called I Am, We Are. Um, and the big idea is that when, when we're here together worshiping God, uh, looking at the scriptures, ultimately we want to we get to know God better. We want to learn, like, who is God? How has he revealed himself uh, in, in human flesh, in Jesus? And what are the implications of all of that? And most importantly, what does that mean for like my identity? Um, not because we just want to like think lofty thoughts and ponder the deep things of God and the universe, because ultimately we want to meet God in a way that actually transforms our lives and informs our identity so that we can be the kind of people and the kind of community that reflects who God is. And so as we look through the scriptures, we find God revealing himself in Jesus and that's the I am bit. Jesus, he, he frequently made this statement, I am. And he would describe certain aspects of who he was as he was revealing God to us. But then that means we are. We are his children. We are his hands and feet. We are the body of Christ. We are meant to embody who he is. Thus, I am, we are. Um, I came across a really cool quote earlier this week. I sort of rediscovered this quote, as it were. Um, love to throw that up for you guys. Uh, Augustine of Hippo, fourth century church father. He said, he wrote as a prayer in uh, Confessions, Lord, let me know myself, let me know you. This is what theologians call the double knowledge of God. It's exactly what we've been talking about for the last few months that we're not just getting to know God, but in so doing, we're also getting to know ourselves because when we look to Jesus, not only do we see God revealing himself, but we find ourselves being revealed in Christ. It's this beautiful paradox that we find in scripture. So that's what we've been up to. Um, it's what Augustine started a long, long time ago. Um, let's go ahead and open up to Luke chapter four. And if you have a Bible, go ahead and whip it out, open it up. Um, we have some boxes in the, the two aisles here with Bibles in them. As always, you're very welcome to grab one of those um, or just read along. Um, but let's just jump right in and then I'm going to pray and we'll, we'll continue from there. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's reading directly out of Isaiah chapter 61. 
Verse 20, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Jesus said in response, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah one of the ancient prophets, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, drought, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, another ancient prophet. None of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up, and they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for giving us your spirit who teaches us. I pray that this morning... As we consider this, this story, this event that took place, that you would open up our hearts and open up our minds, that we would see you clearly and get to know you better and understand who we are in you better as well. Help us in Jesus' name, amen. So we can go ahead and go to the next uh, picture there. Uh, this is our final installment of the I Am We Are series. And we're talking about I am, we are secure. And I have a, uh, we have a pop quiz this morning. So I have six questions that I want to ask you. And uh, they're sort of a multiple choice kind of deal. And this is just a way for us to just think a little bit. How secure are you? Like in life, in your relationships, are you a secure person? So here's some questions. Some of these questions might sting a little. Some of them might just outright offend you. So just buckle up. Um, number one, question number one. When someone corrects you or offers you some hard-to-hear feedback, are you A, most tempted to defend, a.k.a. explain yourself, and why you did or said something a particular way, or B, Eager to listen carefully and fully maximize the criticism, even if in the end it turns out to be poor feedback. Question number two. When you hear someone say something you strongly disagree with, do you A, feel immediately inclined to present your counter view, i.e. the right view, or B, Take advantage of the opportunity to ask questions, listen, and to come to a genuine understanding of their unique perspective. 
Question number three. This one has three options. When someone says something that offends you or hurts your feelings, do you A, try to pretend or convince yourself that you really don't even care that much? B, begin thinking of ways to retaliate, shun, think bad thoughts, or in some way get even? Okay. Was that Ken? That was, of course. C, uh, tell them respectfully but honestly how you found their words offensive and then give them a chance to make it right. Number four, and I believe this one has uh, four options. How often do you admit that you're wrong? A, never, because it's always the other person who's letting me down. B, occasionally, but of course I would never say it out loud because people might take advantage if they found out. C, all the time because I'm just that incompetent. D, probably not enough. Two more questions. Number five, when you do make a mistake, um, and there's three options here, do you A, try and downplay it or even hide it altogether if possible? B, blow it way out of proportion and beat yourself up for as long as it takes to feel like you've paid for your blunder. C, own it, learn from it, Make it right, if possible, and then move on. And number six, how are your relationships? A, shallow and one-sided. B, awesome, except for the fact that no one really knows me. C, hard work and humbling, but life-giving and genuinely fulfilling. So, what do you think? How secure are you? Now, I know, I know some of you are thinking, like, hey, that's, that's just not fair. Like, come on, life is more complicated than that. There's definitely more than, like, three options for some of those questions. And I, I get it. Like, I'm not trying to be clever or, or anything like that. Um, but the point is simply, when you start thinking about some of these questions, surely... Surely you connect at some level with at least a few, if not all of these. And hopefully, hopefully we can all admit to ourselves that, yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, I, I connect with quite a few of those. It's simply not all of them. Um, and when you put it that way, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe I am working through some insecurities. I think that's a good starting point. I think, I think that's honest. Um, how secure are you? And most importantly, what does that do to your relationships? What does that mean for how you relate with others, for how you give and receive love in your relationship with God, um, in your relationship with others, and I suppose in a way, even in your relationship with yourself? How secure are we? Now, the passage that we looked at in Luke chapter 4, I would argue just exemplifies the pinnacle of, of Jesus' security as a human being. It's, it's, it's slightly bizarre. There's some little twists and turns in it. But in the end, what we see is this man who, who goes from like everyone loves him to everyone wants to 
throw him off a cliff to he simply passes through the crowd. He seems like wholly unaffected by everything that's going on around him. He is supremely secure. And I want us to to look at this in in detail. Um, Verse 14, this is where we started in chapter 4, simply says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. Where, Where was he? Where was he returning from? If you back up just a little bit, he he was in the wilderness. Uh, He'd been baptized. It says that his heavenly father spoke and he had this amazing, amazing words. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It says the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus. He heard the words of his father. The Trinity makes a cameo appearance. And then immediately afterwards, it says that the Holy Spirit drove him out into the wilderness where he was then tempted by Satan after having fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And, and the devil just goes right after his identity. That's where he's coming from. So he leaves the wilderness after having done like battle with the devil. And now he's returning and he goes to, um, well, it says he was returned uh, in the power of the spirit to Galilee, which is a whole region around the, the Sea of Galilee. It's a whole bunch of fishing towns, one of them being Capernaum. Um, eventually he leaves that area and he goes to his hometown. Now, this is, this is an interesting twist because what, where we start is Jesus is like at the top of his game. Like he's, he's doing well. Everyone loves Jesus. Everyone's down with JC. He's, he's traveling around, uh, the word spreading, and it says he's being glorified by all. Like everyone loves him. He cannot, he can do no wrong. But then he goes to his hometown. He goes back to Nazareth. This is where little Jay grew up. And something interesting happens. He goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath, which was his custom, which is what he does. And then he gets the scroll of Isaiah. He quotes out of Isaiah 61, as we read. And initially, everyone's like, that's awesome powerful words. You're so eloquent. You speak with authority. You can tell they've not quite connected the dots yet. They don't get exactly what he's saying. It would seem um, that he's actually like boldly proclaiming, you know, these words were about me, Messiah, King. And they're just like, they just love what he's saying. Never mind how he sang it or exactly what what he's saying. They just, they're down with it. They love it. And then someone in the church, someone in the synagogue, you got you, you to gotta put yourself there. It's like someone in the back row is like, <clears throat> isn't that Joseph's son? That's what it says. Someone says, isn't that Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. In a moment, the tone changes. The atmosphere in the room shifts and it goes from everyone loves Jesus to now all of a sudden, hang on a second. Who do you think you are exactly? You're you're Joseph's boy. You're little Jay. You grew up in Nazareth. Who, Who exactly are you implying that you are? And the tone changes. 
isn't it, um, isn't it true to life? You know, like when you go home, get around some family, maybe go to your hometown. You just you know what I'm talking about? It's like you're growing up, you're, you're an adult. Perhaps you're doing all right, feeling confident, feeling secure in life. And then you go to visit home. Go back to, to mom and dad's house. Uh, some, some of you, I'm sure, have amazing relationships with your parents, and this probably doesn't apply at all. That's awesome. Like, that does happen. In my experience, I love my parents, and they're going to listen to this sermon, so I'm going I'm to be very careful to say what I'm going to say. Um, but when I go home, it's, I feel the pull like to, to regress back to little Simon. And it's hard because in my parents' eyes and in my siblings' eyes and in my hometown's eyes, I am still little Simon. Like that will never, ever, ever, ever change. As far as my mom's concerned, I will always be the little boy whose butt she wiped many, many times growing up. That will, nothing will ever, ever change that. And that's real. That's real. It's amazing how when you go home, or whatever home, the home scenario might be for you, your insecurities can begin to play up. So that, that's, that's where we're at. This is, this is the, the scene. How does Jesus respond? How does Jesus respond in his hometown scenario? Well, as I just read, again, verse 23, Jesus says to them, doubtless you will quote me this proverb. And he says, physician, heal yourself. And then he, then he says, this needs this a little unpacking because this, this is connecting some, to some Israel history. He says, what we, have heard you, what we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as, <coughs> excuse me, as well. So the people there in the synagogue, they're like, look, we heard about you, Jesus, but we know who you really are. So prove to us you are who you think you are. Prove it. Justify yourself. Defend yourself to us. So they're, they're, they're pushing him into a corner to, to make him defensive, really. What does Jesus do? He says, truly I say to you, this is verse 24, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. He's like, I get it. I get what's going on here. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel. So then he makes this sort of obscure reference to two instances of something that happened back in ancient Israelite history. He says, during the time of Elisha, there was a drought. And it said that God didn't send the prophet Elijah to any widow except for Zarephath. This woman who lived, she was a, a, a Sidonite woman. She was a Canaanite. She was not one of God's children as it were. She was, she was, she was part of the enemy nation. And says, God didn't send, didn't send Elijah to provide for anyone except for this one widow who was a Canaanite. So already, it's like, okay, that's, that's not cool. Why do you got to go there? And he continues. He also says in verse 27, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. So Elijah was the predecessor of Elisha. And he says, none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. Naaman was the general of the Syrian army. Okay, the Syrians were like the baddies. Okay, they were the ones that conquered Israel and were oppressing them at the time. And Jesus said, during, even during that time, 
That's, is, is that mine? <laughs> Not Siri. Siri. Siri is useless. Can I just say that? <laughs> Utterly useless. Stupid phone. <clears throat> Jesus is reminding them two things. Number one, he's saying how their forefathers were just like them and how God did not play their game. There, there was this sort of um, religious assumption, this kind of spiritual pride uh, that the people in the synagogue apparently kind of had going on. They expected God to be a certain way, to bless them in a certain way for certain reasons because they were God's people. It was their right, they were entitled. And Jesus is saying, look, you're just like your fathers. Jesus reminds them that God is utterly unimpressed by their religious credentials and that he has only ever been moved to heal those who are willing to humble themselves and to turn to him, trusting that God is as good as all of the rumors make him out to be. Essentially, he is now confronting them. Honestly, he's confronting them in their religious hypocrisy. He says, you're just like your fathers. You thought that I was going to be a certain way. You expect me to perform for you. You're like, this is a little J. We, okay, number one, prove to us who you really are. Justify yourself. Defend yourself. Be who we expect you to be. Do it now. And Jesus is like, nope. I'm not going to play the game. In the same way, my heavenly father refused to play the game. You, you think I'm, I'm meant to, to perform for you? You think that somehow I'm obligated to fulfill an expectation that you, you've placed on me? No. I'm not going to play that game. And what do they do? They attempt to throw him off a cliff. In a moment, they're like, right. Yeah, we don't like you anymore. Let's kill this guy. He went from Jesus, the rabbi, who everyone was speaking well of, the guy that all of the synagogues wanted to get in their meeting to like, dude, this guy's got to go. We don't like him anymore. Let's throw him off a cliff. Are there any aspiring preachers in the room? Yeah, I got one. <clears throat> Let this be a great encouragement. You will probably never, ever, ever preach a sermon that's so offensive that people literally want to pick you up and throw you off a cliff. Now, it does set some kind of precedent for the importance of actually speaking truth, regardless of whether people are going to like you or not, um, because that's, that's just called being loving. Um, I remember preaching a sermon one time in London, uh, bear with me as I just get this off my chest. And uh, a friend of mine who leads a church in East London had invited me to come and preach. So I'm like, awesome, that sounds great. And uh, I remember going there and there was a clocking on the back of the wall just like that. And I'm a terrible timekeeper. So like I'll preach for hours and hours and hours unless like I have a digital countdown like we do right here. Even then I, I usually just ignore it. You guys are like, yeah, we know. 
And so anyways, there was, a, there was an analog clock hanging in the back wall. And I remember thinking to myself, like, okay, the service ends at 5.30. Okay, great. So I just need to be done by, like, 5.20. Like, that's, that's all I need to know. Like, I don't need to keep track of the time. I just need to, if I've done my math right, I just need to be done by 5.20. So essentially, I've given myself, like, an hour and a half to preach because I didn't actually do the math. So I'm preaching, preaching, preaching. And I remember thinking at one point, like, man, this, is, this feels like I'm preaching forever. But I look at the clock and I'm like, no, 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 I'm good. I'm still well under time. By about like 5.15, there's a guy right about where you're sitting, Gregory. He begins to yawn really loudly. Like one of these, like, I'm trying to make a point, yawn. And I'm like, man, like, dude, how rude. And eventually he stands up and he, he literally stands up out of his seat and he's like, I'm like, Yeah. I see that hand. What, do you have a question? He's like, uh, excuse me, sir, church ended 15 minutes ago. And then all of a sudden in a moment, I'm like, oh, goodness. Oh, goodness. I've been preaching like well over an hour. Worst sermon ever. <laughs> worst, one, of, one of like the worst moments in life ever. Just that, that feeling of like, oh, my goodness. Like, how can I just disappear out of this place now? Now, to be fair, they didn't form a mob and try to, like, like throw me off a cliff. Um, but that's, that's called preaching a really, really, I wouldn't say bad, but upsetting sermon when your congregation wants to literally murder you. <laughs> but what does Jesus do? He walks right through the crowd. It's, it's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. It would seem he's just, he's just not affected. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't form a counter-mob. He doesn't start screaming at them. He doesn't get into a shouting match with these people. He simply passes through them and moves on. Now, I would be remiss to like completely overlook the fact that okay, this, this is not actually metaphorical. Like he literally like passes through this murderous mob. Okay, so that's some kind of miracle, right? But I want I do want to point out that that we would be wrong to think like, oh sweet, like this is straight up Jedi mind trick stuff. This is like Jesus, like I am not the Messiah you are looking for, and just somehow passes through them like some straight up like like magic you know, stuff. Um, that actually, I, wait, there's another heresy that comes up at this point. I was talking about heresy last week. Um, docetism. Have you heard of this heresy? This is another ancient heresy. And basically it's also known as the Superman heresy. This is the idea that when you're seeing Jesus do miraculous stuff, like unexplainable miraculous stuff, it's easy to think like, well, oh, of course, because he was like the God man. Like, he was God. So he does stuff that, like, no one else could ever, ever do. True-ish, but not totally true. Because what we're told over and over and over again throughout all of the Gospels is that Jesus was 100% human. Like, a big deal. And anything less than that just veers over into the category of Gnosticism, which is like this rampant heresy that still makes its way into the church today. This idea that like 
Jesus only appeared to be human, but he was really a Superman. We only thought he was Clark Kent, little JC of Nazareth, but really he was Superman. And that's bad theology. Now he was God in the flesh, but God in Christ relinquished his God powers, as it were. He was the human, the spirit-filled human, demonstrating force in all sorts of ways. This is what it looks like to live the ultimate human life. It's very, very important. And I make that point so that we can, we can then sort of come to grips with this sort of broader principle that actually in the same way that Jesus was able to not react and remain utterly secure in who he was, that's, that's for us to grab a hold of. That's for us to be like. That speaks to my identity, our identity in Jesus Christ. We are called to pass through the crowd. He walked right through the crowd and went on his way. And you know what he did next? We didn't read this part. But you know what he did next? In verse 31, it says he went back to Capernaum. Remember what the crowd said? We've heard what you did in Capernaum. So go on. Show us what you got. And Jesus was like, no. I, I, don't, I have no need to, uh, to justify myself or defend myself to you. I know who I am. And it's all right, fine, we'll kill you. No, you won't. Pass us through the crowd. Now at that point, if it was me, I might think like, you know what, forget all y'all. Like, if, if me doing miracles, healing people, casting out demons, proclaiming liberty to captives is going to cause you to act like this, Forget Capernaum, forget Galilee, forget Nazareth. I'll see you all in hell. Oh, wait, no, you won't. I'll be in heaven. <laughs> what does he do? He goes back to Capernaum. And he continues doing what he had always done. Casting out demons, healing the sick, proclaiming the kingdom of God. He is not affected by the opinion of this mob. He passes through the crowd and goes on doing exactly what his father had called him to do, to be who he knew he was. That is secure. That's beautiful. That's passing through the crowd. He didn't quit. He didn't begin to counter-riot. He didn't even post an angry rant about those idiots in Nazareth. He simply kept on passing through the crowds, teaching the people, casting out demons, and praying for the sick to be healed. How was Jesus so secure? So this is the big question. How did he do it? Like if Jesus is modeling something for us as the spirit-filled human, how does that work? How do we get through all six of those questions and say, no, like I, I am a secure person. I know who I am. I can love people without feeling obligated to justify, justify myself or be right or retaliate or all these things that we do when we're feeling backed into a corner and we're coming face to face with like our deep, deep insecurities. How do I pass through the crowd? How do I walk like Jesus walked? This is the big question. Number one, 
Um, as I've just said, this was not some Jedi mind trick, okay? I said that. This is Jesus being a spirit-filled human. Number two, he was secure in the crowd the same way he was secure in the wilderness. Where had he come from? He just returned from the wilderness, empowered by the spirit. Where was he before that? He was being baptized by his cousin John, receiving the words of his father, being clothed in the spirit and being told, you are my son, I love you, I'm pleased with you. What had Jesus done to um, warrant such unprecedented affection? such extreme praise from his heavenly father. What did, what did he do? Nothing. That we're told of, really. You could argue, well, he did, he did get baptized to fulfill all righteousness. He was obedient. Okay, fair enough. But had he performed any miracles? Had he done anything great? Had he impressed the crowds? No. He simply knew who he was as the son in relationship to the father. The one who was clothed in the spirit, whose identity was formed by hearing those words. You're my beloved son. You are my beloved child. I am pleased with you today. That is where his identity came from. That's the source of his security. How do we experience this kind of security? Now, I don't reckon, I've actually been in the the Jordan River. This is where Jesus was baptized. Um, Swimming around a little bit, pretty cool. Hit my head on a rock. It was much, wasn't quite as deep as I thought. I was pretending to baptize myself. Almost gave myself a concussion. (laughs) Um, so I did not, I did not hear the words of the father spoken audibly. I did not see the Holy Spirit descend upon me like a dove. Um, would have been awesome. How, How do we do this? How do we experience such incredible security? Guys, as a church community, this, I, I've known all of these, these words that we've been working through. This this is something that I I had prayed about like months and months and months ago. And I was so excited to land here because as a community, I I don't know that there's anything more. I'm not going to say it that way. I was going to say, I don't know if there's anything more important than this. There's a lot of important things that we need to think about. But in terms of like our being a community that reflects the heart of God, a community that's for anyone who can come in here and we can deal with truth honestly, like we don't pull punches for fear of like hurting people's feelings because that's not loving. That's, that's just, that's a, I don't know, it's just being diplomatic. We all come in here together, broken sinners, insecure, looking for something. And we, we figure it out as a family. I love how Hannah's always calling us a family. It's so good. What, what would happen if as a church family, we began to grow in our security where we could like do conflict with each other. People could come in here with all sorts of just, 
just craziness, insecurities. What if the security that we can experience as a community in this place was so secure, was so defined by our relationship with our Heavenly Father like Jesus, that the insecurities just get overwhelmed by the security that we have in Christ. What if we could be the kind of community where when conflict happens, like the church doesn't split in half? Or if someone gets offended, like which is just inevitable, we all know that, right? When someone gets offended, they're like, all right, I'm out. I'll just go down the road because I can totally do that. Totally could. But what kind of family is that? What kind of, I mean, what, what is that? That's just insecurity fracturing relationship. What if we could be the kind of church family that is growing in a deep security? What if we could begin to, to develop a, a whole culture of security so that we can get a bit messy with each other, so that we can learn how to do conflict in a way that's healthy and right, so that we don't get defensive when things get personal, so that we're not so quick to justify ourselves when someone lovingly but honestly confronts us in our bad attitude slash sin. That would be amazing. That would be amazing. We could all begin to grow together. What if we became the kind of community that was so secure in Jesus that we could actually admit when we're wrong? Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? If we could actually say to one another, you know what I said last week? I was totally wrong. I mean, technically I was right, but my tone was way off. I'm so sorry. How amazing would that be? How do we do that? Two things, and then then we're going to end. Number one, confess your insecurity. This is the starting point. This takes us all the way back to where we started. If if you were there for the beginning of the series, Genesis chapter three, the man and the woman sinned and insecurity entered into the picture. They realized in a moment they were naked, they were exposed, they were vulnerable, they became insecure. What did they do? They got fig leaves and tried to like sew together little loincloths to cover themselves up. And this is, of course, what we do. This is why we justify ourselves. This is why we get defensive. is because we, we feel insecure. So, I mean, what else are you going to do? You're going to cover up. You're going to look for something to gain strength from. You know, we do all sorts of things. Like, some of us are really smart. Some of you are really smart. And so you, you attempt to gain a sense of security by being the smartest person in the room. And you need, you need to know that everyone knows you're the smartest person in the room. And so you'll, you'll constantly find ways, like, oh, I read this book, or I listened to this, da 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 and that helps you to feel secure. Or you, you, you look for something you can actually be good at and proud of, and you make that your source of security. And we do this all of the time. It's no different than hemming together fig leaves to cover up our vulnerability. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Eventually, someone else is going to come along and be like, dude, I read way more books than you. I'm way stronger than you. My breath does not smell as bad as yours. Like, I am, and then what are you left with? Feeling insecure once again. 
You've got to justify. You've got to defend. You've got to retaliate. You can't do conflict. Relationship is strained. Community is fractured. Step one, guys, we have to admit, like, I am insecure. I am insecure. I'm not trying to hide it. I'm not trying to compensate for it. I'm insecure. I'm terrified that you're not going to like me. I'm terrified that you're all going to leave here thinking that was uh, an okay sermon. And I'm being very real. Like this is, this is one of my insecurities that I have to like wrestle with. I want you people to like me. And I hate that. I hate feeling that way. I'm like, I don't want to feel that way. And we all have that. You've got to start with like, I am naked in the garden. I've got insecurities. And I don't want to cover up. I don't want to try and compensate which means we need to come to the Father. And number two, we need to allow our Heavenly Father to close up, clothe us in Jesus. Galatians chapter three, verse 27, it says, for all of you who are baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourself with Christ. In the garden, God went looking for his kids and he saw how insecure they had become. He said, who told you you were naked? And where'd you get those fig leaves? Where'd you get those, those funny little loincloths? He said, come here. Let me cover you. Let me be your source of security. And that's, that's when we become children of God. That's when we can begin to act like children again. We might fight. Well, we'll fight. And we'll still be silly. And we'll still sin. But pretense begins to fade out of the picture. I'm not trying to impress anyone. I don't need to impress anyone because I know who Papa is. I know that I'm loved. And I know that my Heavenly Father is pleased with who I am. Not because of anything that I've done, but because who He is and what He has done for me because of Jesus' work on the cross. Can I invite the band to come forward, please?